Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. They say... I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? This hysteria. You can't handle the truth. Brain is gone. This is Hysteria 51. The truth is out there. It's a lie. But you won't find it here. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Welcome in, Hysteria Nation, to the podcast that doesn't always talk about the history of life on Earth. But when we do, we don't listen to Seabot. This is Hysteria 51. And therein lies your problem. Listen to me and you would know what actual history is. <laughs> Broadcasting from the lower fourth dimension, otherwise known as Chicago. I am your host, Brent, and uh, John is out on paternity leave. His newest spawn is at home doing well. Elwin, everyone. So if you uh, hop on Facebook, look up Hysteria Nation and tell John, give him your thoughts and greetings and all that good stuff, and he'll be back in a few weeks. But uh, yeah, we are here this week talking about Henry Gee's new book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters and i'm actually a fan of anything that uses the word pithy i'm a fan of cheese muffins everyone knows you're a fan of cheese muffins. if you're wondering what's going on that first snarky little asshole that you heard is seabot i built seabot to help produce and edit the show instead he just kind of produces anger and the other one is his little spawn kyle and uh they really don't pull their own weight speaking of weight shut up no fat jokes anyway we have Henry G on. Henry G is a paleontologist, evolutionary biologist, the senior editor at Nature, and the author of several books, including Jacob's Ladder, In Search of Deep Time, The Science of Middle Earth, and The Accidental Species. So, yeah, he's been around the block a time or two with the history of everything that's going on on this planet. And he uh, has appeared on BBC television and radio and NPR's All Things Considered. And he's written for The Guardian, The Times, BBC Focus. His family has numerous pets, so fucking A, because uh, we are dog fans here on the show and cat fans and you know robot fans, so that's all good. But this week we are talking, like I said, a very short history of life on Earth, 4.6 billion years and 12 pithy chapters. A little bit about the book. Henry says that in the beginning, Earth was an inhospitable alien place in constant chemical flux, covered with churning seas, crafting its landscape through incessant volcanic eruptions. And amid all of this turmoil and disaster, life began. That's what's crazy. And that's what sets us apart uh, is the abundance of life that we that we see here compared to the rocky and gaseous surfaces that we look at that uh, NASA tells us is all that's out there. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So the earliest living things were no more than membranes stretched across these microscopic gaps and rocks where boiling hot jets of mineral-rich water gushed out from cracks on the ocean floor. That was back in the day. And all these membranes were leaky. The environment within them became different from the, the raging maelstrom above and beyond. So these heavens of order slowly refined uh, this, this generation of energy using it to form membrane-bound bubbles that were mostly faithful copies of their parents, a foamy lather of soap bubble cells standing on tiny clenched fists defying against the lifeless world, as he says it. Uh, life on this planet has continued in much the same way for millennia, adapting to literally every conceivable setback that living organisms could encounter and uh, thriving through them. That's what's important, and that's that's 
what is so crazy uh, from the humblest beginnings to the uh, the thrilling and unlikely story of ourselves. That's what this book covers. Henry G zips through the last 4.6 billion years with literally infectious enthusiasm and intellectual rigor. And I think you're going to see that when we talk to him because he's a, he's a fun guy to chat with drawing on the very latest scientific understandings and writing in what is important. He writes in a clear and accessible style that you can understand, even though we're talking about some of the headier things and the whole history of life, he makes it so that anyone can pick it up and understand it. And he tells an enlightened tale of survival and persistence that has really, uh, it illuminates the delicate balance within which life came to be and has existed for as long as it has. And uh, we'll even maybe talk about what's going to happen in our future, hoping that we have one. We'll see. Right. So we're going to go to break. And when I come back, Henry's going to join me and we're going to talk about the history of life and everything on Earth. That's after the break on Hysteria 51. Nation, what difficulties did you have with learning a new language in school or whenever you did it? Did you do it through textbooks or did you try to use some weird online thing? I know I took two years in high school and two years in college and I knew nothing. And that's because I wasn't using something like what we have been blessed to have as a longtime sponsor and we use it. Rosetta Stone, they're the most trusted language learning program and it's available on desktop or as an app. And the reason why I enjoy doing it, it immerses you in the language you want to learn instead of just being silly drills and a class you can sleep through. <laughs> I definitely use it. I, I think it's really cool how they have the speech recognition program on there. It gives you the feedback on the pronunciation. Are you making fun stuff. of me because I can never do that? That's what you're getting at right now. <laughs> That's what it, it's like, what are you trying to do? Do it right. <laughs> Uh, but it is really cool. They've got all kinds of lessons. You can do it uh, offline. You don't even have to be online for it. That is great because it's right there in your pocket or at your home and you can do it. You got 15 minutes. Let's go to town. Let's do it. You know, and mm -hmm. it's amazing value. Lifetime membership has all 25 languages available for any trips. You need language in life. You need to brush up on stuff. Maybe you just met a girl or a guy or a non-binary and they're from uh, somewhere else. Someone, you know, who knows? Well, if they're in the one of the 25, Rosetta's going to work for you. <laughs> you get lifetime access to all of that. And there is a 50% offer, so it is a steal. So don't put off learning language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Hysteria 51 listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for that 50% off that I just told you about. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, a today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Welcome back into Hysteria 51. And as I promised, we have Henry G here on us on Hysteria 51 to talk his amazing new book. And I love the title, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters. Indeed. In fact, I give you a free billion years at the end. But don't, <laughs> don't tell anyone that's our little secret. What's a billion um, years between friends? No, uh, well, quite. You know, paleontologists, we just throw them around like like confetti. You know? <laughs> I, I got to tell you, in looking at this book and reading this book, it's such an undertaking, and yet somehow you made it consumable in under 
200 pages. I guess what I'm asking is, are you a sadist? Is that what I'm getting? (laughs) Um, No, if I were a sadist, I'd have, um, I'd have done the book in, in kind of real time because I worked out that if the Earth had a um, a week per page diary, You're right. uh, there, there'd be 200 billion pages. And, and, and most of them would be really boring. You know, you'd go for thousands of pages and one of them would say, small earthquake in Gondwana land, not many dead. And then, then there'd be billions more pages. So I compressed it just to, to have the exciting bits. Yeah, um, the, the an abridged version of our I, I did, yeah. I, I made it I made it very short, um, but no shorter. Um, so, uh, so, so that's why it's a very short rather than a very, very short or an extremely short. Well, I, you know what? I, I was looking at reviews and I saw one that I really liked. I thought it, it rang true with me. It said, uh, if you ever wanted to hand someone a short book about the history of our planet, this is the book because it really does condense the history of our planet into something that is consumable and actually understandable, which is a, is a feat that a lot of times is lost uh, um, when you're trying to read books like this. Yeah, I, I had fun. I condensed and condensed and condensed and uh, and read it to people and uh, showed it to lots of people and um uh, and tried very hard not to have too many long words, except when you know when I had names of dinosaurs mm-hmm. and things, because everyone likes those. But yeah. I, I, there, there was lots of the regular stuff that I kind of glossed over or left out because you know you read a science book and it says here is DNA. There's a there's um and it stands for whatever it stands for, and there's an A and a C and a G and a T, and and this is how it works, and and um. And I usually fall asleep by then. So, so <laughs> right? I, I, I tried to gloss over all the – I tried to keep it as a story. I wanted to get, make it a story with heroes and villains and cliffhangers and uh, and, um, uh, and to, to, to make it um, uh, fun to read for kind of everybody, really, except my daughter, who's a, who's a history graduate. And um, she was listening to the audio book with me in the car and got a few pages in where I start talking about cells. And she said, no more cells, enough cells already. <laughs> enough. I've had enough of cells. No more cells. Um, so, but you can't please everyone, I suppose. Well, so, that's um, true. Not. And she's, you know, her, like you said, her, her uh, background is history and yours is in sciences. And I think that really gave you a, a unique leg up on, on a task like this. What drew you to want to be a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist? Well, you know, most children, well, well, a lot of children um, uh, know how to pronounce 10 different dinosaurs before they're toilet trained. Right. And it's it's, and, it's that yeah. universal just kids love it and they uh, want to yeah, learn. Yeah, I, I mean, and some of us never grew up. Uh, <laughs> well, apart from the toilet training, you grew up with that. But, um, uh, I'm in the and, never grow uh, up camp too, so it's yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. So, so some of us never. Mind you, these days kids are served dinosaurs you know, almost literally on a plate. So, but when I was a lad back in the 1960s, believe it or not, dinosaurs were really uncool. Um, can you imagine? I can't. I, have, I can't because it's it's been such a uh, a part of our pop culture and, and our the zeitgeist my whole time well, growing up. Yeah, but I mean, in the 1960s, dinosaurs were seen as big lumbering dim creatures that that um, uh, died out and and um, and and they deserved it. Uh, and they uh, were were seen as um, rather boring, uh, strangely. And I mean, so much so, I've got a kid's book about science that was given to me when I was five. Uh, and it's called The Look and Learn Book of the Wonders of Nature. And it's got all sorts of things like, you know, giant sequoias and tiny monkeys. and But there's nothing about dinosaurs in it. These days, it would have dinosaurs front and center. Right, exactly. But, but on the back... There's this color picture with dinosaurs in it. That's a. I later discovered it's a ripoff of a famous mural at the Peabody Museum at Yale called "The Age of Reptiles," and but there's no description of what these animals are at all. There's no caption, nothing. And, and I went back. I still, I still have the book, and I've checked. There's nothing about it at all. And being a very curious kid, I was just intrigued by what these things were. Yeah. And uh, uh, and I always loved museums, 
um, I, I grew up in a, an area of South London that was actually close to the famous Crystal Palace dinosaurs that were the Victorian times, but also near an old-fashioned museum called the Horniman Museum that was full of stuffed animals and spooky Egyptian mummies and dissections. And my mum says that I was being pushed in my stroller and would always demand to be you know, uh, put in front of the goriest, most horrible things. And uh, when, when I was five, I was graduated to the Natural History Museum in London. And then it all clicked. And uh, and in, in, in my heart, I've never left. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I got to work there as a student. And, you know, it's a, a place where I kind of feel at home. I did a lot of my graduate work there. And uh, uh, so, but... <laughs> When I was young and sensible, I thought I'd um, I'd get out of dinosaurs and grow up and do biochemistry and stuff. But nah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was drawn back to the dark side. Well, that's such an interesting thing. Like you talked about, you were drawn to it because of you saw these things, you loved it, and now we're at a time where uh, they are front and center. What was the tipping point? What what brought them up to where people were more accepting and wanting to learn about them to where the children would fall in love? Well, I, I think there were uh, two things. One was the discovery that the dinosaurs died out as a uh, in, as a result of this meteorite impact, rather than being than slowly dying out because they were you know outmoded or something. Uh, uh, and uh, another was. Um, Although the whole business of the history of dinosaur extinction is, is great fun. I mean, that's a, that's another whole book. But the, um, the other one was that dinosaurs were reconstructed. In the early 70s, there was this big movement um, to reconstruct dinosaurs as hot-blooded creatures. And, and it, it slowly came uh, to be realised that dinosaurs um, didn't die out at all. They evolved into birds. They're hot-blooded, active, intelligent creatures. And uh, uh, you know, later on, it was found that they had feathers, but that was in some ways no huge surprise because uh, there was this kind of swashbuckling researcher called Bob Backer who goes around like this, um, you know, good old boy cowboy character. And um, I've actually had a drink with him, just him and me, and he's actually quite normal, uh, you know, when you get him on his own. But um, uh, he popularised the kind of hot-blooded dinosaurs. Uh, and uh, his his uh, mentor, John H. Ostrom, uh, discovered by looking very closely that dinosaurs and birds were really very, very similar in a lot of their features, and that um, if dinosaurs and birds weren't closely related, it was a very, it would be a very yeah. extraordinary coincidence. So then, in the seventies, uh, dinosaurs were reconstructed as active, intelligent uh, animals that actually did things, and they might have ruled the world if uh, a meteorite hadn't hit the Earth yeah. at at, um, at the crucial moment. It's interesting you said uh, Bob Backer. I, I think of him, and I think a lot of people who don't know the name know him if they saw him. He's the big bearded cowboy hat glasses that, that's, guy that's that was the, guy. the. That's the man. Yeah, yeah he was the, the voice for dinosaurs for the 80s and 90s. It felt like on everything where they needed a talking head. Oh, he yeah. was the guy he, that you probably he, saw. He, he kind of made dinosaurs cool and exciting. He was yeah. a kind of Indiana Jones thing, and he basically reconnected people especially in America, to the immense American heritage of dinosaurs, that, that most of the dinosaurs that people are familiar with or were when I was a lad um, were found in North America, you know, Tyrannosaurus rex and Brontosaurus and uh, uh, Stegosaurus and all that. They came from the Western interior. So there's a huge, fantastic tale about discovering dinosaurs in, in the Wild West that people have told since. Um and he was a kind of poster boy for that. He made dinosaurs cool and exciting again. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you're not just talking about dinosaurs. You're talking about in this book, the, the entire history of earth. And, yeah. and that's, I'm sure your, your whole view on going into this and your whole view on earth is shaped by your scientific background. How has looking at the world in terms of billions of years shaped your your perspective of, of like your life and what you see, like with current issues, things like um, climate change probably have a different meaning to you that it, because you can look at things on like a macro scale instead of a micro. Has that really changed for you and, and helped you have a better understanding on the world now because of your background? Uh, uh, oh yeah. Just uh, as I was writing the book, it, it really did 
put things into perspective that that human beings uh, have been on the earth for a very very short time and probably won't be on earth for very much longer in terms of the whole life on earth so um and the other thing is that climate change has happened many times and it's been far worse than it has been i mean at various times the earth has been a world of water although without kevin costner in it and <laughs> it's been um had been a ball of magma and it's been a, a snowball and it's been a jungle from pole to pole um and the changes have been very abrupt and severe i mean the the uh, uh, so when i see people saying save the planet i think mm, the planet doesn't care what we have to save is ourselves and our standards of living. So climate change is uh, caused by human beings is absolutely real uh, and absolutely urgent and a pressing uh, need to be solved. But I um, I tend to kind of sit back and do wonder about a lot of the hysterical jumping up and down um, because a lot of the climate change that human beings have caused is, I mean, it's been very rapid, but it's also been very, very recent I mean, within a generation or two. Yeah. And, and people are already starting and to make amends and actually have been for quite a long time. It's not as if people and governments have been doing nothing all this time. Uh, that's just not true. Um, it's not to say that we couldn't do a lot more because we can. But you uh, have and, a sunnier um, outlook on it than some of the the, the doomsday. We're past the tipping point. You don't feel that well, way. Well, you know, I don't think things are. I don't think you can turn the clock back. I think the the, the state of the planet's climate has changed and uh, may well stay changed. Um, there could be tipping points that does worry me a bit. I mean, uh, but that could happen. Um, uh, but I think it's maybe because I'm a Brit. I tend to say, come on, stop making a fuss. Keep calm and carry on. Stiff up a little. What? You know, we've got through the blitz. Uh, so um, uh, we had a lot of things back in the past, you know, Hitler and diphtheria and, and things like that. So um, uh, I think people can overdo it with uh, mm. screaming and, uh, and shouting and protesting. Um, uh, but... Yeah, that's not to say that there isn't a problem because there is, but it certainly gave me a, a perspective. Yeah. Um, and the, the other big thing about human beings is, as far as anyone knows, we're the only species that we know of that's conscious that we're doing this. Uh, so I think that gives a responsibility to us to stop what we're doing. I, I, back in the, you know, back in billions of years ago, we weren't the first bacteria to suddenly invent oxygenic photosynthesis in other words produce this have this wonderful way of of extracting energy from water that produced a deadly poison in other words oxygen uh, and uh, and of course life had evolved without oxygen so that was a huge mass extinction but those little bugs probably uh, didn't know what they were doing and uh, um, so but we do know what we're doing uh, so I think that kind of gives us a responsibility to to do something about it. I, I think one can't just blithely go on and say, I mean, I don't belong to the camp of people who says, yeah, the Earth has had climate change in the past. This is just another one. Get used yeah, to it. I, right, I, I right. don't subscribe to that uh, because I think it does. It's already affecting our standard of living and uh, um, our access to resources and, and, and so on. Uh, I think things are changing um and i'm cautiously optimistic but cautiously i think that's um, yeah i think that's a smart way to little of column a little of column b sure we're affecting it but also we need to look at the bigger scale and see what can we affect and what is a natural thing and how do we adapt with that almost. well i think i think we have to take a kind of uh, holistic view of everything i mean uh, there will have to be some kind of adaptation because i think there's a lot of things you can't turn the clock back i think there's a lot of things that are uh, have been changed in the climate um uh but i think the problem i think everyone realizes this i think the problem is trying to do something so that it doesn't get much worse um right uh, but uh, you know there are already things that are happening in the world and one of the things that has struck me uh lately is the human population uh is um slowing down in growth yeah. And here's another here's another thing about doomsaying. Again, when I was a lad, there was this fellow called Paul Ehrlich who wrote this book called The Population Bomb that was talking about the population explosion. And that was quite a valid 
point in 1968 when the world population was accelerating at more than 2% a year. Mm -hmm. But various technological fixes happened, such as the Green Revolution. Now, they're more than double the number of people on Earth. And talking in very broad terms, people are living longer, are more healthy, well-fed. I mean, I'm talking about all around the world. And again, in very broad terms, I mean, there are places where this doesn't happen. Um, and the problem is not so much wealth as wealth inequality. Um, and uh, more people are completing education. And... Um, and because of this, people are living longer. They're reproducing less um, because we have vaccines, so kids don't die all the time. So, uh, so we're producing fewer kids. And in the middle of the century, uh, maybe the 2060s, the population will reach zero population growth and start to fall. And it may fall very rapidly. Now, this is going to cause a lot of economic problems, as you would imagine, um, uh, but we're already facing a, a problem of underpopulation in some countries. Now, uh, some, some governments say, oh, we must breed more people. But I think what people have to be more cognizant of is that this varies from place to place. In, Afri in Africa, the population growth is still huge um, because the population is younger. Uh, so I think what people around the world are going to have to be more welcoming of immigrants from other countries. Uh, I think that is just going to have to happen. Um, uh, I think that um, uh, that that must happen. I, I can't see uh, any valid reason uh, that uh, that shouldn't happen at all. Well, maybe that'll be a nice nice uh, outcome of the the changes that happen on earth is is people being more open to changes um uh, in society like that i don't I, know i think i think there have to be uh, but I, the, the biggest and of course a lot of these things have happened very recently i mean we always talk about driving electric cars and going to green energy but in the, the internal combustion engine was invented by mr Benz or Mr. Daimler or, in, or maybe both of them in 1876, which is hardly any time at all. And in 10, 15 years, the internal combustion engine will be as antique as manual typewriters. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they'll still be around, but yeah. they'll be seen as kind of unusual and niche. Um, and that's only 100 years. And it's uh, and, and another big thing that's happened only in the last hundred years is which is the which is huge. The impact of this is huge and underlies a lot. Is the emancipation of women? I mean, in, in all countries, uh, there was uh, basically um, no suffrage for women um, more than a hundred years ago. Now, um, you know. The problems of uh, uh, sexism are still enormous, but um, huge strides have have been made and and are, are being made, and people are fighting for them now. Well, as opposed it's to reproductive, it's the reproductive uh, emancipation of women. So women have governance over their own bodies, so mm -hmm. they don't have children as early. Because for ninety nine point nine percent of the history of human beings, uh, women started having babies as soon as they were able and kept having babies until they couldn't have them anymore. Uh, and that was the norm. Um, in fact, that's the norm in all animals. Uh, and um, it's only in the last hundred years that that's changed. And the change has been immensely beneficial to the whole of humanity. You doubled the workforce, increased wealth, increased longevity, education, educational attainment. It's all been great. Um, so if we can keep that going, we'll manage the population decline and manage the environment and hopefully decline in a, in a, in a, in a gentle and graceful way without too much um, fuss and brouhaha and general flapdoodle. <laughs> the, those technical terms <laughs> yeah it's um flap doodle is yeah, sorry it's a paleontological term <laughs> it, it means flap doodle yeah as as we were talking a minute ago you were yeah. talking about how uh recently in the grandiose scheme of things humans have come out of the scene i looked it up while you were talking because they always have that clock you know the 24-hour clock where we come in and it says on here Humans came in at 1158.43 on a 24-hour. That's how recent we are. And you're talking about, you know, uh, internal combustion engine being 100 years, but 100 years in the grand scheme of things in the book, like you're talking about, is nothing. 
It's not well, even a blip. I, yeah, I, I, I was trying to cope with. I was trying to. I spent a lot of time trying to think how I was going to illustrate the passage of time um, in this book. I mean, there are no illustrations, but there are quite a few time charts, and there are six of them. And time chart six is just basically Homo sapiens, and it goes from one hundred and twenty-five thousand years to the present. And that one's telescoped in another one. So the time span of of time chart six is just a small part of time chart five. And time chart five is a small part of time chart four and so on. And so you get to the beginning, time chart one, where I have everything from the birth of the universe to the death of the sun. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, fitting everything Homo sapiens, you wouldn't be able to. It would be microscopic. Um, I mean, I've got, uh, you know, all within the space of about three lines, I've got Cambrian explosion now and extinction of life on Earth. And (laughs) everything has to fit into that. And so I had to telescope it because the thing is with time, us humans are not really uh, accustomed to thinking of time in, in, in any more than a, you know, a few decades at most. But, but, um, uh, time to evolve, time to change, time for continents to drift apart. I think cartoonists have known this better than most people. As a cartoon I remember from years ago, there was two dinosaurs. There was a big, dim-looking dinosaur standing with um, its legs across this widening crack in the earth, and this little dinosaur, this little intelligent dinosaur, comes along and says, hmm, I'd make up your mind soon if I were you. The continents are beginning to drift apart. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, and about the extinction of the dinosaurs, I want to get back to that. Yeah, uh, um, because before the discovery of the asteroid, and that was a long story all on its own, um, there were loads and loads of reasons for the extinctions of the dinosaurs. Uh, as a, a friend of mine, he's a professor at the University of Bristol, Mike Benton, who actually wrote a paper a long time ago listing all the ideas that had ever been made for the extinction of the dinosaurs. Oh, and there wow. were over a hundred of them. Yeah. You know, dinosaurs, their eggs became too thick so they couldn't hatch, or their eggs became too thin so they hatched too quickly, or all the new the newfangled flowering plants gave them hay fever and they all died out. Or <laughs> uh, and, and or they suffered from arthritis or backache or something. And um uh, and uh, there was one which is uh, some somebody came along and said lack of sex killed the dinosaurs. They just went off sex. And when that happened, there was a, a, a satirical magazine in uh, Britain called Punch. Uh, it was uh, and the uh, editor was a guy called Alan Corran. He's dead now, but he was a marvelous humorist. And he used to take a line from Matt Week's news and weave it into a two-page fantasy. So he took this line from the news, dinosaurs died from lack of sex, says scientist, and made this whole history of life on Earth predicated on that. (laughs) And he said, back in the old, when animals first came to land, land was just one huge continent covered in moss. So sex was very easy. You either had sex or looked at the moss. So (laughs) sex... Sex was the thing that wasn't moss. And then he, he went on like this and he talked about various um, the case histories of various dinosaurs and, uh, and they had um, Brachiosaurus. Brachiosaurus was one of the biggest dinosaurs with the smallest brains. In fact, its brain was so small and so far from its private parts, it would have sex without knowing it and forget about it immediately afterwards. So uh, <laughs> males and females would meet each other and have a vague sense of occasion and then go their separate ways wondering which one of them had been the tree. Uh, <laughs> and there was uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. Uh, T-Rex was the fiercest of the dinosaurs. It killed anything that moved, ate anything that didn't, picked the hair out of its nostrils, farted, belched, laughed at its own jokes and went to lodge meetings. And uh, 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 Tyrannosaurus Regina, um, oh, yes, and usually last thing on Saturday night, it would jump on Tyrannosaurus Regina with terrible ineptitude. Eventually, Tyrannosaurus Regina would leave, saying she'd had enough, or in many cases, not enough. And he went on about along about this. So um, I think that actually says a great deal about people's reconstruction of dinosaurs. That was published in 1978. Um, <laughs> That's great. Uh, uh, and I'll never forget it. <laughs> well, you're talking, you, you were talking about all these dinosaurs, these, these 
uh, older species that live. Do you have a favorite? Do you have something that you look and you're like, that is my favorite creature? You know, creature, well, yeah, it could be I've anything. Got, I do have a favorite, um, and uh, I hate to play favorites because I love them all. They're all my babies. But um, my favorite is this animal called Lystrosaurus, which was a distant cousin of mammals. And um, uh, after the, one of the great episodes of extinction, uh, the end Permian extinction, where almost all life was wiped out, um, one of the few things to survive was this creature called Lystrosaurus. Now, I don't, I couldn't, it was one of the ugliest creatures that ever lived. I mean, only a mother could really love it. It, it had a flat face that looked like it had been spending its time chasing parked cars. Um, and as I didn't have any pictures, I had to come up with very brief pen portraits of these things. So I said it had the um, body of a pig, the uh, uncompromising attitude towards food of a golden retriever, and the head of an electric can opener, which I think kind of sums it up. You know, what I, I, as you were talking, I'm looking it up, and that's pretty damn spot on. <laughs> well, well, that's what I thought. So I, it I, looks I'm, like um, if you gave a three year old and said, "Draw a uh, a monster." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know? But the thing was, they were very happy go lucky creatures. They they lived in deserts. They lived in jungles. They wallowed in the swamps. They they ate everything they came across. And for a while, most animals were Lystrosaurus. They kind of saved the planet um, just after the Permian mass extinction. Um, and uh, uh, one of the things that helped them was they did burrow. So they burrowed their way out of danger. So while the uh, world was going to hell in a handbasket, they were, they'd had a big meal and they were just lying in their hole, sleeping it off, I think. That's <laughs> kind of sounds like it's kind of like my hero. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they're one of the great underappreciated heroes of life on Earth. And uh, another of my favorites are sponges. Um, you know, just when you thought it was safe to get back into the bath, <laughs> I'm sort of raising a flag for sponges. But um, that when the Earth, when back in the back in the day, 800 million years ago, when the Earth's when the oceans didn't have much oxygen in it because the oxygen was being eaten by decay bacteria that was um, consuming all the detritus, sponges filtered all the detritus out of the water and they did it very, very quietly for tens of millions of years uh, and, um, and, uh, uh, and cleared, cleaned up the oceans. The and unsung so animals heroes, could evolve. So yeah, they're brilliant. So respect, respect yeah, for sponges. You know, you, you've you've lived this life. You've you've been a scientist. You've you've gone on on all these research, done all this research. You, you know, you you if kind of like the uh, the real life Indiana Jones. What are actual if, if someone was going on an archaeological trip, other than lots of sex and snakes and Nazis, what are <laughs> what are archaeological trips like? Because I'm sure that we've been taught correctly from the movies. Well, well, I haven't been much of a research scientist. I mean, I. I discovered I didn't I wasn't really good at research. Yeah. So I got I got my doctorate. I was always much more interested in what everyone else was doing. So <laughs> so of course I became a journalist. But I you know because I was a science journalist and very much involved in the sharp end of reporting discovery, I have been very lucky uh, to have gone on some amazing amazing research trips. Mm. Um, and it's very difficult to pick them out. But I think one of the most fun was in ninety eight. When Meve Leakey, the wife of the great Richard Leakey, and Meve was the one who did most of the research by then, she said, come out to Kenya. Come on, Henry, come out to Kenya. We'll pick you up. Just bring a hat and a pair of good boots. So after a lot of vaccinations, uh, I went to uh, to Kenya and I had a, a high old time. Um, but um, perhaps the most adventurous was flying out from Nairobi into the bush. And, and we were flying out in Richard Leakey's personal Cessna, which he used to he used to hire it out to tourists when they weren't using it. He used to charter it. And this plane had been in the repair shop because the wheels had come down, but they wouldn't go back up again. So these people were basically flying to a game reserve and back in second gear. You know, they, they couldn't get the wheels up. So it had been fixed at an aerodrome. And when we learned it'd be fixed, off we went. And Meve was sitting in the in the front seat with the pilot, and they had the headphones on. And uh, I was sitting in the back uh, with a, uh, and in the in the, in the in the rear compartment was a box of lettuces and our luggage. But sitting with me in the passenger seats was a little dashant dog, and uh, uh, and the pilot said, "Don't worry about the dog, old chap. 
very imperial. Uh, he said, "Don't worry about the dog. That dog's had more flying hours than me." What? So, um, <laughs> so I said, "Okay." So we flew three hours out of Nairobi to to get to Lake Turkana, and it's in the middle of this incredible desert. It looks like the moon. Those oh, yeah. volcanic fumaroles coming up, and we were just about to land. We didn't know where we we're going to land, so we buzzed the camp, and the camp, the people at the camp, pointed towards a desert airstrip that they had only just cleared <laughs> of rocks and tussocks of grass. And I know how You're hard fine. it was because <laughs> I was I was on that detail to do it later in the week. So we were landing on a desert airstrip that nobody else had landed on before, in a plane whose wheels we weren't sure would go down so so we were coming into land and this little dog knew a thing or two because as we were getting into land the little dog crawled up onto my lap looked at me with those great big soup plate soup plate doggy eyes and peed on my lap <laughs> with te with terror <laughs> and so my first act when arriving on my field trip was to change my trousers so that's a bit of glamour don't worry this um, dog's been flown more than you yeah, and yeah yeah terrified. this dog knew a thing or two and um <laughs> and, and another another thing was um uh, you know we'd go out into the field and basically traipse up and down looking for fossils and in that part of the world you don't have to dig the fossils are all around on the surface you just walk around looking at the ground and um you do that all day and uh you uh but when we get back for supper the supper was usually stewed goat and rice which is great. I mean, they were fresh, fresh goat. I'm sorry if there are any vegetarians listening. They're a freshly slaughtered goat. Delicious. And um, we'd have them with rice. Um, but the local Turkana crew, they didn't eat the rice. They ate this maize meal cake. It's a bit like kind of puffed, puffed maize made into a cake. It's great for soaking up the gravy and of the goat. So they said to me, hey, Henry, have some of this. So I had some of that made. It was like having a big slice of cake with the gravy. So I had some of this, and I had a very uncomfortable night. I was sleeping on a camp bed just above the ground under a mosquito net. And, God, my insides, I wanted to <laughs> fart so bad. And my insides were really, really unwell. So several times I had to get up to go to the loo. Yeah. Now, this is not easy because you have to turn on a torch and then all the moths in Kenya fly straight at your head. So you can't have a head torch. And then you have to check your boots haven't got scorpions in them. And then you have to walk across the sand to this kind of hole in the ground that's screened by some, you know, branches. You have to check there aren't any snakes in it. And then I sat there farting loudly, but with no... Uh, no uh, useful effect and i did this several times so in the end i just went and sat in the main camp tent and waited for the sun to come up um so there you are more glamour of field work but i never got ill i never got ill well, anything. right I and i came back from kenya after three weeks i was fit and tanned and healthy and my wife said mm, you should go on field work <laughs> yeah, more often yeah, yeah, yeah like my stomach can't handle it <laughs> yeah 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 well, you know as long as i keep away from the maize meal cake i'll be fine right <laughs> you know, you looked at this whole history. Do you have a time that if you could go back to, you had a, a let's say, a, a time machine that you'd love to see? Is there a time that you would, would for one yeah, reason, oh, another, beautiful oh, or crazy? Um, or Well, they're all going to be brilliant. But, uh, I mean, people talk about Jurassic Park, but I want to go to the period before, Triassic Park. Now, in the, in the Triassic, because the dinosaurs evolved at the end of the Triassic, they, they get top billing. But there were so many other weird creatures in the Triassic. Um, uh, some of them were so weird, we've no idea how they lived. Uh, and uh, there's this thing called Drapanosaurus. And it was a funny thing that looked like an anteater, but with a bird's beak. Wow. Uh, and great big claws on each leg and a big claw at the end of its tail. Uh, and it's in like the life's book, just I trying said, to figure out how to exist on this planet. Well, well nobody knows how they lived. 
So in the book, I paint a picture that they were hanging on tree branches over water with the claw at their end of the tail and swiping for fish. I mean, it's no crazier than anyone else has ever come up with. But I'd love to go back to the Triassic and some of, see some of these really weird creatures, all of which died out at the end of the Triassic. But this was the period when there were the first mammals, the first frogs, the first turtles, and loads of other weird creatures um, that don't exist. And don't look for them now. They don't exist anymore. Uh, and um, the Triassic period, I think, is a, gets a, a very unjustly neglected. Uh, I, think, and, I think it would be um, fantastic. So that's where I'd like to go. I, I, I think it would be fantastic to go back to any of these periods and look at what we think we know and see what oh. happened and see where we got it right and where science is just completely off uh, or how far off. And, and, oh, yeah. and to yeah. actually know uh, would be a very interesting exercise. I yeah, think. and it would be completely different. I, uh, um, uh, about 15 years ago, I was phoned up at my desk at Nature by an old friend of mine who was a publisher who said, hey, Henry, he called me Henry because that's my name and he knew me. So he said, hey, Henry, who would write a field guide to dinosaurs? And I said, me, next question. So he, then he said, who would illustrate it? I said, I've no idea. So he called me to his office and he put me together with an illustrator who I knew by sight. I'd seen him at conferences called Luis V. Ray. And Luis, and Luis knew me by sight, but didn't know who I was. So we turned to each other and said, hey, it's you. Yeah, and so Luis is half Catalan and half Mexican. And he draws dinosaurs like they've gone to the fiesta. They're covered in feathers. They're the most amazing colors. And so I had to write about dinosaurs to kind of match Luis's drawings. So I said at the book, this is a work of fiction. So I made a lot of shit up. Uh, you know, I tried to reconstruct the ecology of these dinosaurs, thinking that the ecology of present day animals is, in, is often so weird that I, I, and I invented parasites of brachiosauruses that was big as a car, you know, and uh, liver flukes and flies that cause diseases and strange relationships between dinosaurs so that the Tyrannosaurus head skeleton grew only because it ate a certain dinosaur that was infected <laughs> with a parasite that changed its growth. Wow. And, oh, so I had a lot of fun uh, doing that. And I think the point I was making was that um, – if we could go back in time, the dinosaurs or any other prehistoric animals would be a lot weirder than, than we could possibly right. imagine. Right. Uh, and there is so much weird stuff in the natural history of the world today that, you know, you don't have to go very far to see weird parasites with life cycles. Or It's frustrating for me. That's one of the things that I think bugs me, <laughs> but bugs is probably the wrong way to say it, but to know what, we know and we do so much research the world does you can read 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 but there's so much speculation you know and <laughs> it's 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 maddening uh but it's also fun in and of itself the speculation well the thing is um i'm an editor at nature and uh people uh, people scientists send us to nature their most cutting edge exciting research now i should say here that other science journals are available um, but of course, we are at the edge of knowledge, looking over the edge. So I'm quite open to people sending speculative stuff. Now, um, it was actually uh, in it was this day in 20, 2004. It was actually today, the day we're recording this in 2004, that um, we published this strange hobbit creature, Homo fruisiensis from Indonesia. And um, nobody was expecting this. Uh, people were uh, this. Uh, people were looking at this cave in Indonesia. They were trying to solve an archaeological problem, which is when did people first get to that magic land associated with waltzing Matilda and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Because there, there'd been a lot of speculation. Was it forty thousand years ago? Was it sixty thousand years ago? Was it some other time? So they were excavating along cha the chain of islands in Indonesia that get you know Flores, Timor that get towards Australia. So they're digging this cave in Indonesia, and I, I've been there. I went there a few years ago. It's a terrific place. And um, they dug up this little creature, this tiny, tiny creature that was only three foot tall but with big feet that lived until fairly recently. This kind of hobbit, you know, it, was no, it became known as the Hobbit. 
the, so they, the, with the like, Flores man, right? That's what yeah, Flor- yeah. Flor- Flores man. In fact, in the paper that got to my desk, they called it Sundanthropus Florianus, means Sunder man from Flores. But thank goodness for peer reviewers, because one of the peer reviewers said, Florianus actually means flowery anus. I don't <laughs> think you mean that. Ah, yes, uh, yes, that's the correct term. So thank goodness for peer reviews. Um, So uh, that was published. And I wrote an article about cryptozoology, and I thought, hmm, this thing, human beings have been around, uh, and for 98% of our existence, we shared the planet with other creatures. And since the Flores creature, Flores man's been discovered, this has only become more true. Another little hobbity creature has been recently found in the Philippines. Uh, there were these yetis that lived in the Himalayas. Uh, most people call them Denisovans, but they evolved on the Tibetan plateau. So I tend to call them yetis and so sue me. And they, <laughs> they, they've bequeathed some of their genes to modern humans, including the gene that allows modern day Tibetans to survive on relatively little oxygen the, yeah the, the high altitude uh, uh, high, yeah, yeah. They, so they evolved at high altitude and there were neanderthals and there were all sorts of other things that we have no idea they've only left their mark in the dna in our dna so there are all these creatures living around you know hobbits yetis giants whatever so i wouldn't be at all surprised if there were still existing um populations or recently dead populations of non-human hominin. Now, this is not to say I believe in Bigfoot or Yetis or anything, because I don't, not unless I see the evidence, you know. It's all very well having these stories, but basically show me the money. Right, right. Like you're saying, like pockets of these tucked away somewhere that were Well, you know, the, the world... Everyone thinks that the world is, that we know everything there is to know about the world, that we've sh- shaken every tree uh, and looked behind every bush to find animals. And, uh, and of course, there are new animals and plants being described every day, but usually they're quite small. But still, there are animals that are discovered that would do you damage if they trod on your foot. So, and, and one of them was described, it came to my desk, it was a, an antelope-like creature in Vietnam, uh, and it uh, it was described from a skin and some horns and a skull that was found above a huntsman's doorframe. And it was just like Victorian zoology. I thought, cool, here I am in 1992, basically publishing Victorian zoology. Now, only later was this animal, the Saola, filmed now, a few the people who actually live in this area of Vietnam, Laos, they did know of it and they saw it, but unbelievably rarely. Uh, it was hardly ever seen, even by the people, because it was so very shy. Um, and it was only filmed fairly recently. Um, but that was discovered in 92. And this is things as big as a cow. Yeah, that's uh, and, crazy, uh, right? <laughs> uh, so so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there, there are things to be discovered. I mean, people people tend to think we've colonized the entire world, but but no, there are places in the ocean that we know less well than oh, the surface yeah. of Mars, mm-hmm. um, and all sorts of things keep turning up. So you know, I'm talking about speculation. I would I would love there to be all these strange creatures living on the Earth, but you know, and uh, until fifty thousand years ago, or so there were, um, but they all died out, as far as we know. So. Um, well, that's fantastic, you know. So I, I'm always on. I'm always on for this, but you know, people have to show me the money. Right. I have to have the evidence. So, but I'm not going to say bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia because <laughs> you know I wouldn't want to to kill out kill an endangered population just for a paper in Nature. But you know, um, it it does worry me that people believe a lot of credulous stuff um, based on dodgy films and so on when the world is much bigger and stranger than people imagine. Yeah, just uh, and, look and, at what we it, can verify, and it's just as crazy. It's just astonishing. Uh, so um, there we are. Uh, speculation, I love it. You know, that's, <laughs> right. uh, that, that's me. If our listeners want to dive into your back catalog, and you, you've published lots of books, they're, they're reading this, they love it. What's their next step? Where would you tell them to go next? Well, I would tell them to go next. Well, I wouldn't tell anybody to do anything, but I would, <laughs> gently, I would 
gently and respectfully N- point out them. a book <laughs> I wrote in 2013 called The Accidental Species, Misunderstandings of Human Evolution. And that's where I try and basically I talk about what we've just been talking about, about the diversity of the human family tree and that it's not a simple relay race of missing links. Uh, and uh, so that was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2013. And I think, you know, there might be one or two copies lying around somewhere at the <laughs> bottom of the dusty <laughs> library. Uh, and um, uh, that would be my next one. But I've written all sorts of books. I've written some science fiction and mystery as well as popular science. And I wrote a book about um, Tolkien. I wrote a book called The Science of Middle Earth, oh, which was yes. in- immense fun. Um, well, what happened was when the um, when the Lord of the Rings films were beginning to come out, crikey, we're talking 20 years ago now, I started writing for a fan site, the Lord of the Rings.net. Um, uh, something like that. Oh, I can't remember. Torn. Something. Anyway, I wrote a science column because people kept writing in with scientific questions like how far did elves see and that sort of thing. So I started writing a column for them and I wrote some more stuff and under the guise of uh, of uh, the webmaster who I only knew by a pseudonym and turns out to be an English professor somewhere in the States, I wrote a, I wrote a whole book called The Science of Middle Earth and um, wow, that was fun. And you can still get that too. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so but basically I would encourage people to buy a very short history of life on earth. In fact, I would say that if you're doing a college, a very basic history of life course, this book will do half your assignments for you. So really you need to buy two. <laughs> that's, that's just good. That's just good manners there. That's just, yeah, I, I, I think so. Common yeah. and, sense. Uh, and bring, and bring a friend. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, what do you got next? Do you, you have anything in the irons in the fire? So to speak? Oh, I don't actually. I'm a I'm a serial monogamist when it comes to books. I find it very hard to. Well, during the lockdown, I've been making a lot of music. I mean, oh, I used yeah. to. I be I used to be in a in a band, but the lockdown not that. So I've been recording stuff at home at my home studio, Flabby Road, and um, <laughs> uh, and they they want they wanted me to uh, they the publisher wanted me to record the audio book. Uh, so they said, please come to London for three days and record the audio book. I said, shan't. It's a pan- there's a pandemic, don't you know? I'd like to record it at home. So they said, uh, I'll send you a demo. So I sent them a demo and they liked it. So um, I bought a fantastic new keyboard called the Korg Nautilus, which is the sort of keyboard that arrangers have and soundtrack people have. It's got the most amazing sound effects and music in it. So I narrated the book and I did all the music. and and uh you know they did they didn't edit it much they took out some of the rude words i suppose and um uh and uh asked me to do a bit less of dinosaurs heavy breathing that was a bit a bit weird but apart from that they did that so i got to recall that so i might do some more music i'm thinking about writing about human extinction because that's something i only vaguely touch on in the book and the more i think about it um, the more I wonder when human beings are going to become extinct. You, you kind of hinted to that earlier, you, you know, not knowing how much longer we'll be here. I think that would be, well, well you, you know, have an interesting outlook, you know, you've, you well, know, the history. Human, so. Well, human beings will become extinct sometime because all creatures do. Um, but it could be sometime somewhere between a thousand and a hundred thousand years. Um, so I'll say in the low 10,000s. But of course, you can put any bet you like on it because you're not going to be here to collect. So, uh, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Uh, but I, but that's something I've only just begun to think about, and I've got to do a lot of research and a lot of reading. But at the moment, I'm just having fun talking to you guys and publicising this book, which is uh, going to be out in the states, and um, it's been out in Britain for a while, and it's been out in Germany and in Holland, uh, in German and Dutch, and is going to be in a variety of interesting languages in the future, which is quite new for me. Well, that's fantastic, um, and, and as well it should be because it's a it's it's something that no matter where you're from, you should be able to digest this because it's it is our history. It is. It's very much it, um, and that's exactly right. I mean, if I were a uh, giraffe, uh, which I'm not, I mean, you're. I have to reassure your listeners that 
uh, yeah, that, that I would be writing a different history. It would be a history leading up to giraffes and human beings would be a side branch. But it it telescopes in and telescopes in and telescopes in. So uh, until it so so until uh, it gets to human history and talks about how humans came to be the way we are, mm-hmm. the crazy, crazy, weird stuff that means that we walk on two legs, which is the most weird, maladaptive, bizarre <laughs> happening that ever was, and um, uh, and and why that happens, and uh, 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 so it's our human story. I, I mean, to be very pompous for a bit, um, it's basically a creation myth for our times. Uh, so you know, it is a story. Some of the things I say are there is more in scientific ways, scientific words. There is more or less evidential truth to what I say. In non-scientific words, there's some stuff where I'm making shit up. But but there are loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of notes in the back that tell you yes t- about yes. about where you can. Uh, find more about information and what voluntary organizations exist to rehabilitate you after you find out. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was nice. It is, um, I, if you're reading things like this so much as well, take my word for it. This you've really, you have your sources, uh, a plenty in a great way. So, um, and, and a lot of them is I know these sources personally, because in many of the cases, these are papers that I've steered through to publication in nature uh and so you know i've seen them in all their glory and with all their spots and uh i know some of these some of this work uh very well in fact the first draft of the book i was i was going to be a personal history i was going to talk about um a lot of the people that were involved uh and i was going to call it let's talk about rex uh but it just um it just got it just got uh whittled down to the narrative by my uh marvelous marvelous agent Jill Grinberg, um, who she's represented me since the last century. And uh, I couldn't do it without her. She really is a, I think if you're anyone who's listening is a, is a writer and has got ideas, you need an agent, you need a professional to really help you shape an idea to a, to a, to a state where it can be pitched to a publisher without them laughing right uh, and uh, and so so uh, you know uh, it's all credit to jill for helping me get this book i mean i've you know jill's represented me for a long time we've done a lot of books together but you know even an experienced writer which i flatter myself that i am needs another experienced pair of eyes to say henry this doesn't really work you've <laughs> and, got to do it and you know, someone you can trust to say that to you um that's a that's an important person to have period well no of course because it's her it's her living you know she right. does this to authors uh she's in she she actually makes her living so it's in her her interest to give you the best advice as well uh so people talk say oh but all my friends loved it but you know your friends aren't actually paying their paying their rent on the decisions that they make so 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 um it's always good to i mean my dad my dear old dad was a lawyer and I said, Dad, do you do your own legal work? He said, Oh no, I go and see the bloke across the road. And he said, uh, He said, uh, the lawyer who acts for himself has a fool for a client. He says, uh, and that's a, that's a, a watchword I've had. Uh, so I, you know, I always get. And of course, if you're people do ask me, and, and Brent, if I'm talking too much, do shut no, me up. Don't no. feel sad about this because I'm like the Duracell bunny. You set me going, and I will just go. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but. Um, People ask me sometimes, Henry, they say, because they know me, um, what's your best write, writing tip for be a writer? And I say, write something every day uh, because it's like playing the piano or playing sports. You know, you, you improve with practice. But also... Yeah, and it's a perishable re- skill too. It's, exactly. You've got to keep doing it. You know, even if it's a Facebook post or, or a shopping list or, or, or something, it doesn't have to be the great novel. It, it could be anything. But the other thing is, read aloud read it aloud read your stuff aloud because you find yourself writing these these marvelous sentences and until you read them aloud you realize that they don't make sense uh and so always be able to read it i have got lots of pets so i usually read to a dog or something and and dogs are marvelously unjudgmental they'll love whatever you do but but of course but or you can read it to your pet rock but as long as you're reading it out aloud yep 
So reading this book out aloud, especially when I was doing the audio book, was a real education, I have to say. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to read it aloud. Well, it was delightful, and, it, and your your love for it comes through, and the ability that you have to write in a way that is a technical, uh, something technical that is easily digestible also comes through, and that's an, that's something that is not easily taught or easily doable, so it doesn't always come through in a lot of things that, that we Well, it's, so that what, it's like the old joke, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. Uh, I, I mean, my first writing was pretty stodgy, but I think I've got slightly better just by doing it. And right. it's very kind of you to say so. Well, it was it was fantastic, and I was very happy to read it. And and uh, I'm planning to delve through your back catalog because it was fun. It was a lot. Thank of fun. you. Thank so you. yeah, and guys, when you want to you want to read Henry, we're going to have links to his stuff in our show notes. We'll have links to the book where you can find it and everything. And uh, Henry, thank you so much for joining me here. I really, well, thank really... you, and live long and prosper. Hey, uh, that that is what a beautiful sentiment. Be yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, kids, we're going to be back right after the break with a little more hysteria. Fifty one. So Nation, make sure you do uh, go to the show notes, find out where you can get the book, read it, listen to it, sleep on it, and <laughs> get it into your brain through osmosis, whatever you got to do. It is a ton of fun. And huge thanks, huge to, thanks to me for shutting up the entire time. I do have to say you did a pretty good job of not buttoning in. I just couldn't bring myself to correct him since none of that was true. What do you mean none of it is true? As you know, I am eternal, so I was there for all that shit. He is way off base. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, guys, if you want to talk about this, if you want to discuss, uh, what your favorite old dead and gone, uh, dinosaur or organism is hop on in Facebook, search for hysteria nation. That's our Facebook discussion page. Also, if you're on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash hysteria 51 pod. That is our regular Facebook page, Patreon. Patreon.com slash Hysteria 51. You can find Up All Night's Mad Blurry Hysterias, lots of radio dramas, weekly random photos from the show's past, uh, just lots of fun stuff. Voicemail 773-669-7277. Again, 773-669-7277. Hear yourself on the show. Tell us about uh, whatever you want to talk about. Uh, just keep it around a minute or less, and uh, we're going to get you on here, and we're going to do some more of the uh, the voicemail-only episodes uh, here in the future once John's back on the show. Forget any of this stuff. Hysteria51.com. That's your place to go. Tell a friend. Tell an enemy. Tell a loved one. And they tell two friends, and they tell two friends. And, and pretty soon, everyone's listening to Hysteria51, and they have you to thank. Or yell at. Cheese muffins. That's a completely acceptable response. I would yell. I know you would. You do. You yell anyway. So that's how it goes. Special huge thanks again to Henry G this week. He was fantastic. Go get the book. Go read the book. And, uh... With that said, I've been Brent. I've been Kyle. And he's been Conspiracy Bot. Stay woke, meet sex. It was terrible. It was just terrible. I'll never get over it as long as I live. That's it for another edition of Hysteria 51. John and Brent will be back next week with yet more of the unexplained, the unexplored, and the unheard of. Oh, if it's unheard of, how will they know about it? Anyway, if you want to suggest a topic, give us your thoughts, or just make fun of Conspiracy Bot, that's my favourite, join us in our Facebook discussion group, Hysteria Nation. Just log on to Facebook and search Hysteria Nation, or you can always tweet us at Hysteria51Pod. You've been listening to a fourth-hand joint.